0: And we've been recently working our way through um, a few chapters of uh, this book of Acts. And what we're looking at is the growth of the early church. So the book of Acts tells a story from um, the small group of disciples who've realised that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They've encountered the resurrected Jesus. Jesus gives them a a job, a task to say, off you go, out into the world, um, sharing um, the the message, the, the news about Jesus. And then the book of Acts tells us what that is. Um, so we see the disciples starting to tell people. We see more people responding, um, putting their trust in Jesus, becoming Christians, as, as we might call it. And then we, see pe- we follow different uh, journeys as that spreads outwards and outwards. And we're currently following, um, and have been for a while, the journeys of Paul, um, who go- is going from city to city, telling people about Jesus, and essentially starting churches in places, and then moving on um, to other places. And so we've seen him go through a few different cities recently, and he arrives in a new one uh, this week, which is Corinth. And Corinth was a massive city at the time, so it's, it's one of the biggest uh, cities he's been to. Last week he was in Athens, which was certainly very notable and like, well-known and, and highly regarded, but in size it was nothing compared to Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a massive city known as a big commercial uh, centre, as well as a, a, a big religious centre. Uh, place as well. So we'll just have a, another look at the first few verses there of, of chapter 18 as Paul arrives in this massive city of Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader and his entire household, believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. There's two things that I want to draw your attention to that have really stood out to me as I've been studying this, this passage over the last couple of weeks. One is from that first section. The other bit is from the second half. Um, but it's the proclamation, the proclamation, um, the proclamation of, of the good news, and then there's Paul's perseverance. And so those two things, those are going to be the two things we're looking at, proclamation and perseverance. We've seen... Everywhere we've read about different, whether it's Paul or other disciples going to places, in the book of Acts, there's a priority on telling people about Jesus. That's what I mean when I'm saying proclaiming the gospel, telling people the good news about Jesus. Um, The last few weeks we've seen Paul do that in a a succession of different cities as he goes there. Paul's proclamation, him him telling the good news, he's just relentless with it. That's, That's what he's going there to do. And so he's in a new place, Corinth, but it's exactly the same pattern as he follows everywhere else. If there's a synagogue, that's where he goes. So he goes to the synagogue, he starts persuading people, telling people that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they'd been waiting for. He does that, it says he's doing that every Sabbath. And then eventually, as is quite common when he goes around, it it starts to get a bit unpopular. And so he ends up getting a bit of abuse there. And so he goes next door and starts preaching to Gentiles. Now I was just thinking about Paul's early life. Like we, we know from other things that he writes that he had been a Jewish, sort of on the path to being a Jewish religious leader. He'd studied under a well-known rabbi. He seemed sort of destined for a nice comfortable career amongst like, a respectable world of like, the Jewish elite religious leaders. And he actually started off trying to shut down Christians because he saw them as teaching something that was offensive or blasphemous to the Jewish beliefs. But then he had an encounter with Jesus that was so powerful that he turned his back on that life. And now he's a bit of a nomad. He's just sort of like going from place to place. He's relying on the generosity of other people. Like, okay, great, he meets these two Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, and they let him stay with them. He's just relying on the generosity of people as he goes... Um, he gets beat up in places. He gets criticised everywhere he goes. He has to flee some places in the night. I was thinking, you, know, you could sort of imagine him thinking, oh, wouldn't it wouldn't have just been easier if I'd stayed in my old life where I had a career trajectory marked out. There would have been no fleeing anywhere in the night, there would have been no angry crowds, it would have been nice and comfortable. And actually I was thinking, no, you can't imagine that. I I could imagine that if that was me, that's what I would be doing. But you can't imagine Paul doing that because we've seen that he's just absolutely relentless. No matter what happens, he's keeping on going. He's keeping on telling people about Jesus. Wherever he goes, that's what he's going to be doing. What I really liked about this little account is we see how resourceful he is. He's relentless in proclaiming the uh, the, the gospel, but he's also resourceful in how he does it. Now, in some places, he can do this full time, like people support him financially, so he spends all his time telling people about Jesus. But sometimes, and this is one of those times at first, he has to work to fund himself. So we find out here that he is a tent maker, he knows how to make tents, and so he works with Priscilla and Aquila for a while, and so he's sort of working, presumably during the week, making tents, and then every Sabbath, he's going and and preaching about Jesus, He's flexible, he's resourceful, like he just wants to proclaim Jesus, he'll do whatever he can to do that. Then, it, Silas and Timothy, who were two of his sort of companions for earlier on, they arrive and meet him there, and um, we know from elsewhere that they bring a financial gift from the, uh, Thes- the, the church in uh, Thessalonica, the, where the Paul's been um, a couple of chapters ago, and they come with a financial gift that allows, himself, allows him to devote himself exclusively to preaching, That's what it says in verse 5. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Now, there's a general principle in the Bible that um, the the people who are leading, who are preaching, um, the, the church should financially support those people in doing that. Paul himself teaches that. But what I really like about this is it's not a limiting factor on him preaching the gospel. Like, when there's a financial gift there, yeah, great, that's, that's exactly how he sees the church working. You know, Some people can contribute financially so that he can then go and uh, speak to more people. But when that's not available, he's not like, oh, well, there's, there's now what I can do here. That, that, I'll just have to wait and see if we can get a bit of financial support, then I'll start. It's not a limiting factor on what he's doing. Like, if it's there, brilliant, he can spend every waking hour preaching the gospel. If it's not there, he's going to work to fund himself and then every bit of his spare time he's going to preach the gospel there's no church here yet there's no benefactor yet when he first arrives so he'll work to support himself and he'll preach on the weekends. now I, I love this sort of flexible resourceful um, type of mentality that paul has and partly because that's the story of grace church there's a way of planting a church where you raise money um, and there's nothing wrong with that it's a good method it's helpful we actually as a church want to support other churches by contributing financially, but that's not how it happened at Grace Church. Now, I've told this story before, so some people have heard it, but um, just when uh, Grace Church was in the sort of planning stage, we just got to the stage of starting to uh, tell a few people about what our plans were. Um, And certainly for me and Lisa were involved in another church at the time and we told the other leaders there about uh, what we were planning. It was a bit of a difficult uh, situation. Anyway, there was a couple in the town that we sort of knew a bit, we didn't know that well, Um, and um, we were going to have them round for a meal. And then it was sort of the thing of we knew they'd heard from somebody about um, what we were planning to do in terms of planting Grace Church with with some of the people. We'd sort of picked up the idea that they didn't think that that was a great idea, but also they'd sort of found out, I suppose, by gossip, essentially. So we hadn't had the conversation with them. So it was a bit of an awkward thing where we knew it was going to come up at some point during this meal, but we weren't weren't sure how it was going to get there. Um, So anyway we're having this meal um, and at one point um, the the guy was telling some sort of story and he was like oh and that's why I say you should never plant a church with no people and no money and I was like "Uh, have you heard about what we're doing Um, and he was like no and I I was like yes you have Um, no I didn't say that I was like oh well we're basically doing what you've just said not to do we planted Grace Church we've said before with no people um, and no money we did it exactly, well, not exactly like, because there was no tent-making involved, but with the same principle as we see with Paul doing here. Um, ben and Scott like, worked part-time and gen- generously donated their time um, to get the church going. Like Paul was making tents and then preaching. Ben was doing something with spreadsheets, whatever it is that he used to do for NHS England, um, and then uh, preaching and, and doing other things for the church. Now, as our financial situation changed, then we were able to use some of the money that we had to pay for some of that time in the same way that we see Silas and Timothy come with this gift and that frees up some more of Paul's time to continue preaching. It's just a flexible approach, a resourceful approach to proclaiming the gospel. When it comes to proclamation, Paul's absolutely relentless. It's just what he's doing. Wherever he goes, he's resourceful. Like however however he needs to make it work, he's going to make it work. And it's also his absolute priority. That's just like it's, it's what we see him doing all the time. Now, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing while looking at this passage is comparing it with some of the letters that Paul writes to the church that eventually sets up in Corinth. And so we've got two quite large letters. Uh, quite long letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are uh, uh, written at a later date as Paul writes um, back to the, to the people who make up the church here. And he refers a couple of times to when he first arrived um, in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we're not looking at this and saying, oh, we're assuming the Paul's priority. Like, he's absolutely clear. When he arrived in Corinth, he resolved, oh, there's nothing, I'm doing nothing here except telling people about Jesus and Jesus crucified. That's his message everywhere he goes. That Jesus is the one you're looking for and Jesus died for you. So when I was thinking about what has this got to do with us today in, in Grace Church, we want to have that same relentless purpose. Grace Church exists to share the good news of Jesus. And we want to be re- relentless with that. Like, that's what we're doing. Like, whether we've, got a, whether we've got no building or whether we own a building, whether we've got one life group or ten life groups, whether we're doing it informally or through events, like, whatever it is that we have got going on, we're relentless in that purpose, sharing the good news of Jesus. Loads of things might change in Grace Church over the future, but that's not going to change. That's our relentless purpose, is sharing the good news of Jesus. And in the same way that Paul is here, we want to be resourceful and flexible in our approach. Whatever resources God gives us, whatever opportunities he gives us, we want to use those to share the good news. We're passionate about proclaiming uh, the good news of Jesus, and we want to be relentless and resourceful in that approach. Now, what we see happening in Corinth is similar to other places. Paul proclaims the good news about Jesus, and it, things kick off a bit. We see people believe, brilliant. Crispus, the synagogue leader in his entire household, believe. Many Corinthians who heard Paul believe and baptise, that's great. And as well as seeing people um, happy about it, we see people who aren't. And so, um, in verse 6, some Jews start to oppose Paul and become abusive, as we said, in the then has to go and start preaching to the Gentiles and then there's this legal sort of attack that, that kicks off. We were told at the start that the reason why Priscilla and Aquila were there was because all the Jews had been ordered to leave Rome. The only reason they were there in the first place was because there'd been some sort of um, proclamation that Jews had to get out of Rome. This, pr- this persecution that breaks out ev- everywhere is no barrier to God's plan. Like, that would have seen like it seemed like a barrier or oh, priscilla and quilla having to leave rome where they were they were living but actually it's helped to enable paul to come to corinth and start preaching the gospel like gets opposition in the synagogue It's no barrier to god's plan he goes literally next door and starts preaching to other people then there's this sort of legal like court type challenge that's no barrier to god's plan look at it in verse 12. While Galileo, Galileo was proconsul of the care, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or, or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves, for I will not be a judge of such things. So, there's like, oh, we're going to drag him before the courts. That'll stop him. And the legal case is just dismissed. None of this is a barrier to God's plan. We see persecution breaking out all over the place. It's never a barrier to God's message going forward. That's not an uncommon thing for us to, to talk about as we look in here. But that last little bit just made me stop and think a bit. So, verse 17. The crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Now we'd heard that Crispus was the synagogue leader and has become a Christian. So presumably he's not the synagogue leader anymore. Maybe he's been kicked out or he's had to stand down. And uh, this Sosthenes is now the synagogue leader why was he beaten up? It doesn't really make much sense. Was he sympathetic towards Paul? Had he become a Christian? Or was it just that he was like there as they were saying he hadn't done enough to stop Paul? It makes no sense why he would be getting beaten up. But it's pretty shocking that he just gets beaten up in front of the authorities and they're not bothered. And that just made me slow down and think, yeah, we see this persecution and I'm reading through it thinking, oh, I'm buzzing that it's persecution There's no barrier to God's plan. And it isn't. But... It's scary for the people who are there. We can breeze through these stories without really connecting with how frightening it must have been for the people who were becoming Christians. Like, we're watching that video about the top 10 countries where it's the most dangerous to be a Christian. You often think, oh, it's, it's great that the church is thriving in some of these countries where the authorities are really trying to threaten people and, and shut them down. And that is great. But it doesn't mean it's not terrifying for the person who, their friend's just been caught with the Bible and they've been dragged off, and you don't know what's happened to them. And every time there's a knock on the door, you think, oh, are they, are they coming for me next? It's terrifying. For the people who are becoming Christians in Corinth or these other places... They're seeing the abuse that Paul gets. They're seeing the random violence here that the authorities aren't that bothered about. And it's going to be terrifying for them. They're thinking, is that that going to happen to me? The perseverance that we see in countries like Iran or, or Nigeria or wherever it might be, or the perseverance that we see of these early Christians standing up to persecution, it's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. It would be much more natural and understandable to think or to read stories of people thinking, hang on, I've just seen this guy beat up and nobody seems bothered I'm going to now keep my mouth shut about my newfound faith that's not what we see, we see perseverance and that's a, a, like I say a gift of the, the Holy Spirit now going back to that letter that Paul writes to these people years later um, he, when he talks about when he visited them, he says a remarkable phrase that like it's just, you can't believe it when you read it. So I read um, the sort of start of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians there to when he said, When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing with you uh, while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The next sentence is this. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Just let that sink in a minute. Because when you read that, you don't necessarily think that that's how Paul's faith. When we read Acts 18, it sounds like, oh yeah, Paul's Superman. He's come, flew in from the previous city. He's not bothered. He's had a flea in the night. Um, he's now turned up here. He gets a bit of abuse. He's not bothered. He goes next door. That's what he's doing everywhere. But he wasn't inhuman. The persecution, the constant opposition, did have an effect on him. Because when he arrived in Corinth, He arrived in weakness with great fear and trembling. That's his own words. He's saying that's how he felt when he arrived here. Even just in the last few weeks that we've read through, he was chucked in jail in Philippi. He was hounded out of Thessalonica by an angry mob. He had to flee at night there. Then he turns up in the next city along Berea, but the same mob from Thessalonica follow him and he has to leave there. He ends up having to go to Athens alone. He's separated from his companions. Um, he speaks to a few people there now he's travelled to Corinth and he's alone there he arrives in Corinth by himself with great fear and trembling he's fearful about what's going to happen there and so how does he keep going when he feels like this great fear and trembling he just feels so weak how, how on earth did he keep going well we're told exactly how he managed to keep going even though he was trembling with fear it's verse 9 and 10 One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. He arrives with fear and trembling. What's he afraid of? Probably more of the same opposition, which does actually happen. So how did he manage to stay for a year and a half teaching the word of God? Because God has spoken those words to him. God provided him. He spoke exactly the words that Paul needed to hear at that moment in time. He told him not to be afraid. He told him to keep on speaking. He reassured him that that God was with him and that nobody was going to harm him. And then he encouraged him by saying, I've got many people in this city. I've brought you here for a reason. And so Paul, despite arriving in great, great fear and trembling, is able to stay there a year and a half teaching the word of God. Now these, this, these words from God to, to Paul can be a great encouragement to us as well. But we've got to think through that. We can't just take things like this and immediately apply it to ourselves because this was spoken specifically to Paul, not to us. And so when you read anything in the Bible, we need to think through like what did it mean to the, the person then And then, like, how does that apply to us? Because, for example, if we just took everything that God says to Paul um, and applies it to ourselves, well, a few weeks ago, he had a vision saying, come to Macedonia. So we'd all be reading it and say, right, where's Macedonia? I've got to go there. Um, That's not how it works. So we need to think through it and think, how does this apply to us? Well, the first thing is the instructions that he gives Paul. He says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking. Well, do not be afraid is the most frequent command in the Bible. I'm confident in saying that the command of do not be afraid, the words from God that say do not be afraid, apply to all of us in any situation. That we can take that on board for ourselves. God says to us, do not be afraid. And keep on speaking. We, um, Jesus gave the task to his followers of going and proclaiming that good news, of speaking about him to other people. And so that first bit of God's words to Paul do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. We can hear that and take encouragement from it. That he tells us not to be afraid. He tells us to keep on sharing the gospel. Not going to look exactly like what Paul was doing. um, But in whatever opportunities God gives us, he would say, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking about him. The next thing that uh, God had said to, to Paul was, I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Well, I am with you. Jesus says that he will be with us um, as he gives that uh, great commission to go out and speak the the gospel, teach people, baptise them in the name of Jesus. He says, I will be with you um, until the end of the age. So that definitely applies to us. God is with us. The next little bit, no one is going to attack you and harm you. Can't be sure of this. It wasn't true for Sosthenes. He did get attacked. It wasn't true for Jason a couple of weeks ago who was dragged in front of the city leaders. It wasn't true for Paul in other places where he did get attacked. It's not true for many Christians around the world who are being attacked. So that particular part of it, I would say, seems to be specific to Paul in this um, circumstance while he was in Corinth. I don't think we could necessarily say with confidence that God's saying to us, nobody's ever going to attack us or harm us because of our faith. I don't think it's likely but we don't know that for certain. The fact that God says he's with us is enough to say don't be afraid and keep on speaking. We don't need that additional part there, but that's why I love it. Like Paul didn't need to know that no one was going to attack and harm him. It would have been enough to God to say do not be afraid, I'm with you, keep on speaking. But he knows that Paul is trembling with fear. And so he gives him a bit extra because he knew that that's exactly what he needed to hear at that time. He says nobody's going to attack you here And then the last thing he said to Paul was, I've got many people in this city. What he means by that is not that there's loads of Christians already waiting. It's that as Paul preaches, there's many people who are going to respond to it because God's already preparing those people. It's reasonable to assume that that's also true in Hartlepool. What an encouragement to think that there's people who will be followers of Jesus and part of the Grace Church community in five years, ten years, however many years you want, that we don't know yet. Because God's saying, I've got loads of people across this town God spoke exactly what Paul needed to hear at that moment. I was just thinking as I was preparing this, like what, which, of the, which of those things is that you need to hear this afternoon? Like it might be one of these things that you really just need to hear at this moment so that you can persevere because maybe you're finding it difficult at the moment. Do you need to hear God saying to you, do not be afraid? Do you identify with what Paul's saying? In any situation, I just feel weak, I feel trembling with fear. God would say to you, do not be afraid. Is it that you need to hear God saying to you, keep on speaking, don't be silent, because you've become discouraged that there's people who maybe you've been talking about with Jesus um, with them a lot and they're just not interested or um, it's been years of people, um, friends, family, people you know, and you're just discouraged. You think that person's just, they're not interested. They're never going to be interested. There's nothing I can say to them. It might be that you need to hear that word from God this afternoon to you. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Maybe you're feeling like lonely in the way that Paul arrived there by himself. Just feeling out by himself and that contributed to his fear. So do you need to hear God saying to you, I am with you. Or is it that you need encouragement about what God is doing in Hartlepool? Might be people you know who maybe drifted away from church or abandoned their faith, used to be Christians and now they're not interested anymore. You need to hear God saying, I've got many people in this city, many people in the town of Hartlepool. God speaks to us exactly what we need to hear at that specific moment in time. That's what he did with Paul. I I absolutely love that, that Paul turns up here, he's trembling with fear, he just feels weak, he's got nothing. And God speaks to him exactly what he needed to hear at that moment in time. And God can speak exactly what we need to hear um, for whatever situation we're going through. just want to finish with a little story that I remembered last week as we were going around the Tall Ships event, which I'm sure uh, many people did. um, And we were just walking past a bit and I said, "Oh, Lisa, to see those bins over there, and there's a load of wheelie bins, and that reminded me of a story from the previous tall ships. Now, the previous tall ships event was in 2010. At the time, I was part of a, a church that was on the headland, and because that was like sort of close to all the stuff that was going on, and it also was occurred during the, the school holidays last time. We just had like events on and different things like every day of the, the tall ships event um, at the church, um, and it was great. Um, and one of the things that we planned was that we, we all had like um, branded clothing, like T-shirts and hoodies, that, and that with the church's name on. And one of the things that we were doing um, was we would plan to just go out onto the tall ship site, wander around, try to start up conversations with people about Jesus, offer to pray with them, share the gospel, that sort of thing. One of those things, it was a classic thing of when we were all sat in a room a couple of months before the event, that sounded like a really great idea. And when we all got there, we were like... Oh. I would, like what do we do here now so um anyway at the time um the the leader of the church and um, the pastor was called kieran he'd only been there for about six months um, He was relatively new to the church and he told the story after um the, the day after or something that um when we arrived we sort of like spread out and that and we're all thinking oh, a bit like how, how do we start doing this and he just felt so weak and so unable to do it and so terrified like like Paul did here, just weak with fear and trembling, that he went behind this big thing of wheelie bins and just sort of stood there for half an hour thinking, I don't know what to do, praying out of desperation, God please help me. That's what I remember when I saw these bins. He just was round there just thinking, I'm a fraud, I've come here. like If people knew I was like, chickening out of it and just standing behind these bins, like what well, they wouldn't want me here as a leader. And he's just praying God to desperately help him. And God did strengthen him. God gave him exactly what he needed for that moment in time. Came out from behind the bins. Somebody said, why are you behind those bins? No, they didn't. Um, came out from behind those bins and people started approaching him. I, I remember at least two different uh, things that he had. One like really powerful conversation with somebody who'd been um, into sort of spiritualism who was really hungry for information and wanted to hear about Jesus. And then another couple who he was able to pray with and there was a miraculous healing involved. It was like unbelievable that Kirin was feeling just at his weakest, at his lowest. He's hiding behind the bins, like not knowing what to do. He asks God desperately to strengthen him, and then he like, shuffles out from behind the bins, and God provided him with exactly what he needed. It was, a, it was a great story when he told it, but it was even better because he didn't leave out the part about the bins. He could have said, Oh, I went on, I had this brilliant conversation, I met this brilliant person, I prayed for this person there would have been a real temptation for him to not include the part about hiding behind the bins for half an hour because it's a bit embarrassing for him. Especially seeing as he was new, he was trying to create a good impression. But he didn't leave it out because by telling that bit, it showed that the glory didn't belong to him. All the glory for that belonged to God. It showed us as a church that God um, is in charge of what's going on, that he provides exactly what we need uh, when we need it. It's exactly the same here. I love that Paul in his letter provides that bit of information that we don't get when we read through the story the first time. That he arrived in weakness, in fear and trembling. He didn't have to say that years later because nobody really knew that. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila had picked it up when he was living with them, but nobody would know that. They would just look back and think, Oh, Paul arrived, took a bit of abuse, kept on preaching, and now there's a church there. But... Paul doesn't want the glory for himself as if he was some superhuman church planter. He wants the glory to go to God. And so he's saying, look, when I arrived, I was I was in I was a weak. I was weak. I felt weak. I arrived with great fear and trembling. But God encouraged me. He gave me exactly what I needed for that moment in time, and that's how I was able to persevere. Let's pray.